Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. During the past year, perhaps like no other year, we have been bombarded with statistics. COVID cases, numbers of deaths, positivity rates, and flattening the curve. Add to this an election and polling data that drowned us in information. On top of all this is disinformation and the traditional ways in which numbers and statistics can be used to deceive us. And then just this week, statistics about stocks, the market, and all manner of economic information. Data is everywhere. Every publication of note now has whole departments devoted to data visualization. One wonders, though, where is the information we have lost in all that data? Whether you are good or bad at math, there's a lot to take in, to process, and to try and understand. My guest, Tim Harford, just might be able to help us with that. Tim Harford is an award-winning columnist, broadcaster, and economist. He's the author of Messy, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, and he's also the author of The Undercover Economist. He's host of the Cautionary Tales podcast and an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. It is my pleasure to welcome Tim Harford back to this program to talk about his newest work, The Data Detective. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Such a nice introduction. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. Is it our imagination or are we being bombarded with so much more data and statistics today? I think we are. And there are a few reasons. One is just that it's easier to, you know, to gather data. It's easier to plot graphs. And the social media ecosystem is highly uh, devoted to whatever gets shared and reshared and whatever might go viral. And, and things that are visual tend to go viral. And, and so you know, pretty graphs, pretty animations uh, are, are an example of that. So that's, I think that's all part of the, the world that we live in. What I think is really important is not to lose sight of how, in, how informative the data can be. To my mind, it's like it's like radar or an MRI scan if you're sick. It's showing you things you couldn't see in any other way. So it's really important that we don't become fatigued or cynical, but we continue to try to learn from, from the data that we're being shown. There is the perception, I think, on the part of some that what the, what the data, at least when it's presented in those kind of visual ways, that it lacks a certain amount of depth, that it's a kind of shorthand, that, it, that part of the reason that there's so much of it out there, particularly in, in journalism, is that it's, it's sort of an easy way to get people's attention in, in a world in which there are so many things competing for that attention. Yeah, I compare it to uh, Dazzle Camouflage. Dazzle Camouflage was a, an innovation. It's 100 years old now, more than 100 years old from the First World War. And they realized you can't really camouflage a battleship because what color are you going to paint it? And anyway, it's got smokestacks belching smoke out of the top. So it doesn't really help. And then somebody realized, oh, but if you just paint it so it looks just really crazy, like zebra stripes and diamonds and zigzags and sawtooths, then um, people see it. But, but they, don't, they don't know kind of how big is it? Is that two ships, one ship, which directions it's moving? And actually turned out to be quite effective at, at avoiding being torpedoed by, by U-boats. And I think a lot of data visualization is like that. It attracts our attention, but then actually we've got no idea what it's really telling us. Um, good data visualization is actually incredibly informative and can be incredibly persuasive. I tell the story in the book of Florence Nightingale 
who's fake now. She lived 150 years ago. She's famous for being a a nurse, but she was also a geek. She was a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, and she really achieved a public health revolution in the UK. And she did it by deploying graphs in a very persuasive way. She told really compelling stories at a time when everyone else was just drawing up really, really, really big tables. So it can be used for good as well as for for searching out viral clicks. Is there a wide difference in what you've seen in terms of good and bad data visualization today? Oh, there's an astonishing scope from absolute nonsense, just the most appalling trash, to really informative, detailed explorations of the data that are just incredibly good at showing people what's going on. Uh, I mean, when it's good, it's very good. I, I'm an admirer of my colleague at the Financial Times, John Byrne Murdoch, who will really take a, a, a controversial issue like uh, how bad is, is COVID compared to the flu? And he will just, a nice little animation that will just show you, here are the flu deaths, 2015, 2016, 2017. And you really get a sense of, oh, how they fluctuate over the year and how some years are bad and some years are good. And and then you come to 2020 and you see the COVID deaths and you see how much worse it is. And all of the data can be presented in a really intuitive way. It takes about 20 seconds. So it's really punchy, really compelling, but also really insightful. He's really helping people put the data into context. I think Florence Nightingale would have been proud, actually. <laughs> I mean, that seems like a very straightforward approach. It seems that, that when we look at some statistics today and some data today, polling data comes immediately to mind, that it takes a certain amount of, of numerical or data literacy in terms in, in order to really interpret it. Yeah, I think a, a good website, a good journalist, good newspaper will give you the context you need. They'll do that work for you and they'll explain the uncertainties. I mean, I always find, I think like a lot of people, I would look at Nate Silver's 538 website to try to understand the polls and 90% of that, I couldn't understand what he's talking about. It's so complicated, but the top line would always be clear. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. I think the fundamental thing with polling is you know, you might, for an opinion poll, you might call 50,000 people and you might only reach one or 2,000 of them. And then you ask the one or 2,000 how they're going to vote. And then you go back and you say, well, that gives us a good sense of what the other, the other 48,000 or 49,000, what they would have said if we'd reached them. But you can't really ever know that. Surely the people who wouldn't answer your call are, are systematically different from the people who would. Their politics may be different, their, their job status may be different, their age may be different. And you'll never really be able to fully adjust for that. So a good pollster knows the, the limits of polling, but just because you know the limits of polling doesn't mean that you can necessarily fix them. And of course, one of the other problems that we face is is oftentimes these polling numbers are put out not by 538, but by one side or another in, in a race, perhaps, and they're skewed in a way to make that person look better. They're really not as as clear as, as they might otherwise be. Yeah, you, you would always want to, to try to see the full scope of the information. And you're right. 
there is a tendency for some polling companies and certainly some politicians to use polling numbers as weapons rather than as tools. You know, I, I think of statistics as it, this is like the telescope to which we see clearly things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see. But of course, you can pick up a telescope and you can smash somebody over the head with it if that's what you want to do. So it, it's a question of how we want to, to use the tool. And when we're, whenever we're consuming statistics, we should just be asking some smart questions. Like, what is this person actually trying to do? Are they giving me the context? Are they giving me the sources? Are they presenting the information in the round? Or are they really trying to push a particular point of view hard? Uh, uh, that's, that's when you should be on your guard. And I think you should be most on your guard when you basically agree with the point of view. If someone is telling you something that you already believe, that's the moment when you're really vulnerable to, to just convincing yourself of things that you, you shouldn't be convinced of and accepting sketchy arguments and sketchy data because they feel right. And they, you know, they're telling you what you want to hear. Wishful thinking is really powerful. We, we've seen so much in terms of data, particularly with respect to COVID, when we hear huge numbers in terms of cases, deaths, etc., either either nationally or in individual states, but you get a very different picture sometimes when you start to look at it on a percentage basis. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there are different ways to make comparisons, and I think different sorts of comparisons invite different sorts of insights. So if you ask people how many how many people have died of COVID, like what percentage of the US population has died of COVID, um, people tend to get that number really wrong. Um, they'll, they might say, oh, 2%, 3%, 5%. Because um, like 1% feels like the smallest possible number it could be. And it's pretty bad. So maybe 1% is, is, not, is not right. Actually, if, even if everyone in the U.S. had been infected with COVID, probably only 1% of the population would have died. Unfortunately, we're nowhere near that. So the true number is closer to a tenth of a percent, about one in, one in a thousand. It's a little bit more than one in a thousand. It gives you a very different sort of perspective. Or you can say 400,000 people have died, that's, and, and 400,000 people and counting. And uh, that's true as well. Uh, and there's no right or wrong way of doing it. I think if you're trying to win an argument, you pick the approach that is, seems most convincing, seems most shocking. But if you're trying to understand, you'd look at the problem in different ways and, and use that to put everything into a certain kind of context. So 400,000 people, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's a terrible thing. Um, also, there are 330 million people in the United States. So it's a little bit more than one in a thousand people. And it's also 400,000 people in total. Both those statements can be true. And if you're not trying to win an argument, you should be able to embrace both of them and, and take them on board. Is there a literacy that, that is concurrent with that? Things that we should be teaching from, from really the earliest math that that help people better understand and keep that dissonance in their head? I think it's important that people uh, learn you know, as much basic math as possible. I think that is the part of the foundation of any person's education. And there are all kinds of reasons why that's a good thing, not just statistical literacy. But what surprises me is that actually 
the kinds of calculations you need to make to interpret the data that are all around us. They're not that complicated. Uh, they're often very simple bits of additional multiplication, uh, very easily done with a calculator. And we've all got a calculator these days, right? Because it's in our phones, it's on our computers. Um, very often the, the math that I'm using in order to interpret the data for my listeners on my radio show or in my book is math that my nine-year-old son can do. It's, not, it's really not that hard. Uh, I, we were discussing, my son and I were just discussing um, Jeff Bezos, you know, just stepped down as, or just about to step down as the boss of Amazon and, and how rich Jeff Bezos was. Uh, and I said, well, here's a way to think about it. Just think, imagine Jeff Bezos was paid a um, dollar every, uh, every second. Well, he'd get a million dollars in about 12 days. Um, but it would take 30 years or so for him to get a billion dollars. And he's got about a hundred billion dollars. So that's more than 3000 years paid a dollar a second. That anybody can do that mathematics. Uh, I, I'm a geek, so I happen to know this stuff off my head, but that's not hard maths. But, but my nine-year-old son could like, oh yeah, I understand now that the difference between a million and a billion, I understand how rich this man is. That puts something into context. And now he understands something that, Previously, he didn't. Talk about the ways in which numbers and stories can work together. You, you, you talk about that, 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 you know, you can look at the numbers, but it also takes a certain amount of reasoning sometimes to, to take somebody through those numbers. I think stories are a kind of magic. We humans think in stories. And you've got a protagonist who did something and then did something else, and then somebody tried to stop her, but she won through in the end and lived happily ever after. We, we follow those sorts of narratives really well. And there's good data on that, that if you give somebody a, a comprehension that is basically just a, a series of factual claims versus turning it into a story, people read the story more quickly and they understand more of the story and they remember more of the story later on. It's, it's, just, it's a real force multiplier for communication. Um, the downside of that is that you can use stories to lead people astray. So you can tell somebody, you know, a story about one, you know, this one thing that happened to this one person in this one, uh, you know, freak accident or incredibly unusual um, outlier. And people really remember the story and can be mes misled by that. So it, it is, as with data visualization and Florence Nightingale's use of data visualization, it, it's it's really about using this power ethically. Uh, my, my favorite example, actually, is um, Stephen Colbert, back when he presented the Colbert Report. He had a running joke that lasted for, for weeks about Colbert trying to raise money to run for president. He was going to set up a, uh, like a super PAC, and he was going to set up all of these vehicles. And the whole point was he got all these experts on to tell him how he could defraud the system. Like, how could he raise the most amount of money with the least amount of accountability, the least transparency, and pay the least tax? And all these experts came on and they explained it to him. And because it was, this, because it was funny and because it was this story with this character who was trying to do this, people really stuck with it and they really went so deep into what is actually a kind of boring subject, campaign finance. And... Uh, the scholars who have studied 
that episode found that the people who were watching Colbert understood so much more about campaign finance, much more than you would get by reading a quality newspaper or, or, or even several years of education, general education. They went so deep and they remembered what they'd seen. So that's the power of stories. And of course, there's a downside as well if they're misused. Right. I mean, one of the key things is, is one, curiosity, and two, the way in which the information, as we've been talking about, the way in which the information is presented. If it, if it is in, in that kind of fun context, it's going to go a lot deeper. It's going to stay a lot longer. Yeah, I think so. I'm really glad you mentioned the word curiosity because that, that for me is the, the golden rule of, of trying to understand statistics. I can give you all the technical advice you like, but fundamentally, if you're not curious, if you don't really want to expand your horizons, if instead what you want to do is grab some numbers to win some argument, I can't help you. Uh, and if you are curious, then it's amazing how far you can get just by saying, I'm interested. I want to know more. Tell me more. Show me more. I'm going to go another click. I'm going to look at another article. And the world really opens up if you've got that frame of mind. What are some of the other key rules? You talk in the book about your Ten Commandments for examining statistics. Talk a little bit about those. Yeah, well, ten is a lot, right? So maybe, maybe I should just simplify it and, and say let's stick to three, the three C's. So, so number one, calm. Number two, context. And three, curiosity. So we've talked about curiosity, how important it is to be curious. So what about the other two? So calm is important. Just when you're looking at a piece of information, when you're, you see a headline, you see a tweet, a Facebook post, whatever, just to slow down and say, how does this make me feel? Is this making me feel angry? Is this wanting me to you know, run to the barricades? Do I feel defensive? Do I feel sad, depressed, fearful? What, do I feel vindicated? This proves me right. Whatever the emotion is, it, it may be important, but it's not helping you think clearly. So notice it. And then having noticed it, I think when you go back to the original claim, you'll be thinking more calmly and you'll be thinking more clearly. So calm, curiosity. The third C is context. And that's really just about making the right comparisons to say this number, like they're counting something. What are they actually counting? How did they count it? Uh, this number sounds bad. Is it getting better or is it getting worse? Is it going up or is it, is it going down? Um, can I compare it to another number? Like, so can I compare COVID deaths to cancer deaths? Or can I compare COVID deaths to flu deaths? That, that might just give me a sense of how bad the situation is and you know, whether it could be worse. Those sorts of simple acts of, of getting context and getting informative comparisons they tell us so much. And of course, when you're consuming the news, if you simply say, is this, is this presentation of the news, is this journalist, is this Facebook post, whatever, is it helping me be calm? Is it giving me context? And is it feeding my curiosity? Or is it making me anxious, giving me no context and no sources? Uh, is it damping down my curiosity, kind of dropping the mic and saying that's the end of the story? I think if the latter, that's a real red flag. But if you're getting 
calm, you're getting context and you're getting your curiosity satisfied. That suggests you're in good hands with this particular uh, media source. Do we have a sense of whether our brains process information differently when we look at statistics in their raw form or in some kind of data visualization method versus just reading about them in the context of a story? Well, we know that people leap to conclusions very rapidly with with uh, with the data viz. So there's some some uh, studies have suggested that people will form a positive or negative impression of a of a graphic within uh, 500 milliseconds, which is half a second. So it, it's not enough time to even know what the graph's about, but it's enough time to go, oh yeah, that looks ugly. That looks that looks pretty. Um, so you're immediately forming these these fast trigger uh, reactions. Um, I think the, the great thing about storytelling is it's is it slower. I mean, it can be seductive. It can lead you astray. But you're processing the data in a different sort of way. You're calmer. You're slowing down. Uh, and I think that that is going to help. But there's I think there's there's no there's no single way to say this is this is how data should be presented. Sometimes it should be a table. Sometimes it should be percentages. Sometimes it should be a picture. And sometimes it's better just to, to pick a story that gives people a sense of what's going on. Um, you, they complement each other. Wisdom tends to come when you've looked at the world from different angles, different perspectives. And that might well mean looking at the raw data and also hearing a, a personal testimony, a reading a particular story. Uh, you're, you're, you're in a better position. Now, it's like a table stands up better whether it's got, when it's got four legs than when it's you know just propped up against the wall on two. Talk about your frustration with the fact that statistics, in some respects, have a bad reputation. That there has always been this this, this assumption, not accurate in most in many cases, that statistics are somehow designed to fool us. It's this cliche, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And yeah, well, statisticians say yeah, it's easy to lie with statistics but it's even easier to lie without them. So we, I understand people's suspicion, but it is, it is, I think, a trap that a lot of my fellow geeks fall into, that in trying to explain statistics, uh, we naturally resort to crowd-pleasing examples, and that tends to mean, oh, somebody goofed or somebody lied. And so we, all our examples are of statistics being abused, and so we don't have good examples of of people using statistics wisely. And that's a shame. And I think that uh, it's not deliberate, I think, but unconsciously we contribute to the idea that there's something inherently deceptive about statistics. As I say, statistics are just, just a way to see things about the world that we, we can't see in any other way. And if we reflexively reject them, we're turning our back on an incredibly valuable tool. Tim Hartford. His book is The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. Tim, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.